Good afternoon and welcome to Madison Bookbeat. I'm your host, Rusty Russell, and our guest this afternoon is Marilyn Taylor, a local poet and educator. Marilyn was Poet Laureate of Milwaukee for several years and Poet Laureate of the state of Wisconsin for several years, and she taught writing at UW-Milwaukee for 15 years. She's published eight collections of poetry, and the latest, Outside the Frame, came out a few months ago from Kelsey Books. She still teaches off and on for UW-Madison's continuing education programs, also at Lawrence University's Bjork London Seminar Center in Door County, and at Poetry by the Sea in Connecticut, as well as several other venues from time to time. She does have a website, and it is mltpoet.com. Marilyn, welcome to Madison Bookbeat once again. Thank you, Rusty. This is an honor. I enjoy I enjoy speaking back and forth with you, and on the radio, it's even better. Terrific. This uh, particular collection, Outside the Frame, is both new poems and poems that you selected from earlier publications, and it's That's divided fine. into seven sections. Uh, I was wondering, first of all, how do you select the poems to include from previous publications? Well, I think there's a it's a two or three step process. First, you get all the you get rid of all the ones you don't like <laughs> from your old collection, and then you pick out the ones that you do like, and you start making little stacks of them uh, in terms of not so much subject matter but mood and tone. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that the which book the poems appeared in first is uh, irrelevant to the, um, the best way to order the new book. Um, I pay absolutely no attention to when. In fact, I don't even know when some of those poems were published because I, I read the old ones now and I, read the, I forget about some of the new ones until you know, later, until they're old too. And so um, I think it's more a matter of just um, not clashing, uh, having the poems not clash with each other, like a poem about grief and loss would not be put next to one about, you know, dating and being, you know, naughty or something like that. It just it would just be a, a, the wrong thing to do. Absolutely. Um, and I'm reminded, since you ask, about um, what I was told that William Stafford once said. This may be apocryphal, but I don't know. Um, he uh, was asked this question about how do you how do you put your poems in order for your next book. And he answered with a very serious face. Um, What you do is you put them all in a stack, and then you throw the stack up into the air, and you watch the pages flutter down to hit the floor, and you pick them up in the right order. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds like William Stafford. I've heard that. uh, The way I heard it was you stand at the top of the stairs, oh, and you even better. and you toss them down the stairs and pick them up as you go downstairs, and that's the order. Oh, that's that's much more visual. That, I like that <laughs> a lot. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, and I I don't know, but that doesn't um, that sort of clashes with what I was saying about uh, sorting them according to mood because I don't exactly throw them up in the air and pick them up any old way, but I do try to get that sort of sensibility separated from. <laughs> one that doesn't go with it very well. Right, right. Yeah. You don't want death and limericks. No, right, no, (laughs) no. 
don't even urge me to try that. <laughs> <laughs> That's your next challenge. Uh, yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Oh, well, I was wondering if you, if you wouldn't mind just reading us a poem, a poem to give us a, a taste of what's in the book. Okay. Um, hmm. I will read my very oldest poem that I ever thought was ready for um, the, to be seen by the rest of the world or the rest of the classroom or whatever it might be. Um, this poem is the result of um, when I was in grad school, I took a course, this is one of my early courses in taking in, in learning how to write poetry. And my, my professor's name was William Harold. There might be some people out there who remember him. He has since passed away and he was a wonderful teacher. And one fine day he got the bright idea to have us all go home uh, after class and bring with us next time a gift for one of our classmates and we would be um, ordered to write a poem about that gift we were given, no matter what it was. So uh, I was given a zucchini. And I thought, uh-oh, <laughs> there aren't too many ways you can go with this. Uh, but uh, I thought there must be a way. So I remember driving home with the zucchini on the front seat right next to me and I'm thinking, what should I do with this? And I came up, what is it that, that uh, zucchinis do You know, all their lives when they're growing in the garden? They take over, don't they? And they, they become sort of the, the king of the road or the garden or something like that. And I thought, that's what they do. And they're Italian. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I thought, all right, I'll write a poem. I'll call it in my own head. I didn't call it this. Um, my um, zucchini noir poem. And it's called The Showdown. Okay, zucchini, with your sleek Sicilian good looks. I know all about you and the rest of the Zucca family. How you start out small in the corner of some respectable old giardino. Nobody even notices. And then you spread, don't you? Till you've moved in on all the little guys, the beans and the carrots and the cukes. And pretty soon you're in charge of the whole damn fatteria, right? Well, I've got news for you, pal. You're past your prime. You're ripe to spend the rest of your natural life in the cooler. Think I'm kidding? Listen, either play along or it's ratatouille, ratatouille. A year in the jug for you, Zook, and your little tomato, too. And your little tomato, too. Yeah. yeah. I had a lot of fun with that one. Well, it's so timely uh, for all you gardeners out there. It's one I'm more. Not a <laughs> oh, neither am I. But one more thing you can do with your zucchinis, folks, is you can give them to people as gifts. Yes. And challenge them to write a poem about them. That's right. You can. That's right. Well, you do a lot of writing in forms, such as sonnets and villanelles and pantoums. And um, there are quite a few sonnets in this collection. Yes, and there are. Usually when a sonnet or any formal poem um, works, the person listening doesn't really realize that it is a form. It's more an organizing structure, it seems, for the writer than it is for the listener, or at least that's the way it feels to me. And what do you think about that? Well, yes, I think that not having the form take over the content is something that a formal poet strives for. And it isn't unless you are um, aware of what forms are and do, and you're looking at a piece of paper. 
ideally, you won't be able to hear it because it won't be sing-song and it won't be rhymey. And uh, it, it will uh, show that, that the poet has a certain amount of skill in being able to sort of disguise, disguise the uh, mechanics of the thing and uh, write it as though it were a natural utterance, which, of course, it is not. And there's exceptions, and you don't do it completely the way people talk. But uh, I don't know. Um, it's, yeah, that's something to sort of strive for if you're writing formally. And people say to me afterwards, and uh, thinking that maybe they're not paying me a compliment, but they are, they'll come up to me afterwards and say, oh, my gosh, that was a sonnet I couldn't even tell. <laughs> and I'm thinking, yes, that was what I was after. That was what I was after. Exactly. Well, and, uh, speaking of sonnets, how about reading us one? Okay, I will. Um, okay. This one is called Studying the Menu. Yeah. Studying the Menu. And uh, it ha- it was the voice of the poem, I think it becomes clear, is um, the, a voice, the voice of a woman who has recently been jilted. Hmm. So, okay, here goes. Speaking of all those things you'll never eat, my love, could one of them in fact be crow? Of course it could, but you already know how poisonous it tastes, if bittersweet. These days you're craving quite another treat, the one who will replace me. But that slow-eyed, slack-jawed creature is surely going to show you all the nuance of a bitch in heat. I hope she has the brains of a golden retriever the glamour of an aging manatee, the refinement of a packer's wide receiver, and finds her favorite books at Dollar Tree. And darling, may she be a born deceiver and do to you what you have done to me. Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> nothing, nothing personal. I, you know. <laughs> oh, I love it. Um, Thank you. Yeah, I was wondering, here's a good question, um, how did you get into the poetry racket in the first place? Uh, okay, well, I was always the one in the family who was chosen to write the birthday poems or the anniversary <laughs> poems, and because uh, I was the only one that could do it like at all. Uh, my father thought he was a poet, but it would wind up sounding like you know, pseudo-Milton or something like that, and it was just, just not working. And um, so I... Um, decided that after I spent several, a few years working for the Sears Roebuck catalog, writing catalog copy for Ladies Undies, and a few more years, actually six, to uh, working for the Chicago Tribune, doing promotion and publicity, uh, at which time I got to write a jingle, a rhymed jingle, for a stuffed animal the newspaper was giving away at Christmas time for new subscriptions. And the, the animals, the stuffed animal's name was Cuddly Dudley. And I had, I had a wonderful time with that. But at any rate, when I finally got married, and I mean finally, it was late, um, and uh, I had a child, and the child was in first grade, and by that time I had moved to Milwaukee. Now I decided maybe poetry was my thing because I really enjoyed it. And so I went back to grad school in what I thought was going to be linguistics, because I'd learned you know, all about the English language, which I find fascinating. But the, the more creative courses I took to a little bit more. And um, I got some encouragement from my professors, which to me was, oh my god, I'm Emily Dickinson all over again. 
but I'm, I'm not. <laughs> but at any rate, um, I decided to take a course that was called Literary Stylistics. It was a little longer name than that, but I can't quite remember. And it told me, the instructor, the professor, told me how to discover how poems were actually structured, particularly the old forms, uh, which sort of are at the basis of all the poetry we write today, we write today, including free verse, which has its base in the iambic pentameter line, even though it becomes unrecognizable, or the even number of beats per line, which is a little looser, or no attention to beats at all, but it did have its, uh, its genesis in, in the poems that, were, that had counted stresses. And I thought all that was absolutely fascinating. And I had a good ear for it, so I remember doing scansions, you know, of poems that were never meant to be scanned, like Whitman and uh, um, Pound and people like that. But you can do it <laughs> if you can hear the stresses. And of course, it doesn't come out even like a sonnet does or anything. But that, I found that fascinating, and I found out that I could do it myself. And I also found out that I could do it and not have it sound as though it were sort of pre-recorded uh, on a computer or something with the rhymes and the stresses all in the right place. I had a kind of a knack for doing it naturally. And so I started writing you know, sonnets and other forms. I have a friend, at least I hope I could call her a friend, a wonderful famous poet named Rina Espayat. If you haven't heard of her, um, email me and I'll spell her name for you. And um, she put it this way. She's a formalist as well. And she said, I like to dance in a box. Oh. And I, I just love that because that's what I do. I like to be in the box with all its restrictions, but I like to dance in it and find new ways to handle the language that will give it, give it more life than a stilted you know, sonnet, to do what you said the best ones do, and that is not to sound like they're in forms at all. So that's a long answer. I forgot the beginning of your question, if there was one. <laughs> <laughs> well, it must have been a good question then. It was. I'm sure it must have been. I believe you. <laughs> yeah. How do, You know, I'm wondering, because uh, speaking Spanish, and I once taught poetry in Mexico, the, there's a really basic difference between English and Spanish. And English is so heavily stressed. Yeah. You can almost, you can't even avoid speaking in poetry in a way, or at least in meter, because, yeah. because of the way that the language works. And I imagine that that goes a long way toward explaining some forms, but not all of them, because a lot of them uh, began in other languages. That's true, and I wish I could explain really why. I think that in some ways it makes writing in Spanish or perhaps in French easier, or Italian, in which everything rhymes with everything else. I, I'm <laughs> jealous, you know, I, and English is not that way at all, although you can fool around with it. You can do slant rhymes and, and that sort of thing, which I, I do often instead of exact, predictable uh, rhymes. But um, I, I think in French, I, I know a little bit more French than I do Spanish, which is not, which is zero, basically zero, except ordering from the menu. Um, just the phrase in French like c'est magnifique, what's with this que at the end? We can't do that. 
we can't do that in English. Just add at you know randomly uh, another another syllable. And the fact that their their words often end with with an e or an ais or something, which you're sort of at, at leisure to 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 pronounce as part of the poem or to sort of slough over or swoosh together. But in, in English, you have to be a little bit more precise, even if you're writing in a very casual register. Hmm. Now, I wonder if you uh, could read us a poem that is another form than a sonnet, either, yeah. f- either from this collection or, or, or something else. Oh, yeah, I know. I don't know which ones are from that I have here are from the collection or not. But I do have... Are you ready for one that's a little bit longer? Sure. Okay, it's, it's, not, it's not boring. It gets really mad. <laughs> so you can, we can wait for that. Uh, this, is, this poem is in the form that's called a sestina. Have you heard of that? I'm sure you have. Oh, yeah. yeah. Of course you have, Rusty. Um, it's a poem that's written in six stanzas, which sounds pretty similar, with a with a little seventh at the end that use, uses um, part of what has come before. And the stanzas each have six lines, and they all end in the same word, but in a specific order. Are you with me so far? So no. far. But <laughs> let me just whip through this without reading the poem, and I'll let you know which um, words I used to repeat in every six-line stanza in a prescribed order. The words are as follows, I, old, last, because, better, and out. Okay? Uh, and the second stanza turns that inside out and goes, out, I, better, old, because, last. You see, and it goes that way through the whole empire, entire poem. And people say, isn't that masochism? And I say, yes, but it's really <laughs> lots of fun to do if you're, if you're up to it. And uh, I am. And so this was one. I'll, I'll just introduce it by saying that my father was a real jerk, and I, I don't like to. Um, I love saying that on the radio because it gives me this wonderful feeling of getting my revenge. <laughs> so um, I wrote, and my mother. Uh, it, it, there was no phys- uh, physical abuse involved at any point, but there was a lot of emotional abuse. And when she uh, became ill, I wrote this poem um, for her when it was clear that she wasn't going to make it. Uh, she got cancer, but I'm sure that my father had something to do with her being susceptible to that. But anyway, I wrote this Sestina for my mother. We never mentioned dying, she and I. Never spoke of passing on, growing old with grace, wearing lipstick to the last emergency, all that. But she died because of cigarettes, they said. But I knew better. Her inner fire, untended, guttered out. When she lay sick, the news had not come out about the changes. Neither she nor I had seen them coming. Not knowing any better, we worried that she'd broken all the old rules, flouted ancient customs, because she hadn't done her penance first, her dying last. But he's Attila, she hissed to me at last. He's Norman Bates before they dragged him out of the cellar. Benedict Arnold, because he turned on me. He was Pinkerton, I the idiot butterfly. I'll stab the old bastard through the heart when I get better. But she never did get better. She got weaker, and her fury didn't last. Her face took on the thick sheen of old ivory as she let herself run out of time. 
She could not know that I was dying too. The nice eyes, the eyes she knew because I seemed next to her so alive because I was getting stronger, better, even as she blurred and faded, even as I saw her breaking up, receding with the last yellow shreds of the sun, snuffed out. But me, I'm rekindled by the old fires. I burn. I have become the wicked old witch. I am Grendel's mother because of her pain. I am the bat out of hell. I am Goneril, or better still, Hecate. And with my wild torch, I will light her way at last. And you'd better not howl, old man, or beg with your last shout, because I'm coming. Here I come to cut your black heart out. Hmm. That Whoa. is revenge. Yes, that is revenge. And I, I forgot to mention that the last stanza is only three lines long and uses all six words. But that's technical stuff. That, you know, it has nothing to do with the content. So is that typically the way um, that you write a sestina? You choose the words, the end words, and then <laughs> kind of fill in the blanks? I mean, Exactly, exactly. You write them down the right hand column of the page in the right order. You have to turn them inside out each time. There's charts for that. And then you just you fill in with what amounts really to free verse, just so the lines end logically on the word that you've stuck at the end that you have to you have to incorporate. Is this clear at all, or is this something that you'd rather not even think about? Well, actually, no. It's something that I'd like to try. Oh yes. Yeah, not I would, here. I would. I would suggest trying it by picking yourself up a copy of the new book of forms it's called the new book of forms by lewis turco t-u-r-c-o and it explains all of these forms including some of the really weird obscure welsh ones and sestinas and sonnets and limericks and everything and it's it's only it's not a very big book it's only about 250 pages, well, yeah, about 250 pages, and you can look it up in an index, and whatever you want to write about, you look up Sestina, and he will show you with graphs and everything else exactly what you have to do. Wow, I yeah, will. Louis, Louis Turco. Louis Turco. Yeah, and it's, let's see, who's the publisher? New England, if they're still around, are the publishers, and it's, it's well known, it's used a lot in classwork. It's probably in the library, and I'm going to no, get it. No, undoubtedly. In this particular book, Outside the Frame, New and Selected Poems, yes. I've noticed that there's a wide range of, of tone, of voice, ranging from uh, the lighthearted and the funny to the dark and even heartbreaking, uh, which makes the whole collection eminently readable because you. you keep getting kind of blindsided or surprised from page to page. And I was wondering, since you just read something that, that would veer towards the darker side, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, could you read us something that is all the way over on the other end of the spectrum? Sure, I can, if I can find it. Um, oh, I do. I will start out with one that... Um, that I wrote about my father not long after I wrote that Sistina, but I, I'll follow up with something a little bit. This is only a four-liner, and it's the only poem that I've committed to memory ever. It's called Family Dynamic. My father's name was not Mel, but it rhymed for this poem. So, 
Mel, Mel, the dad from hell, raise your kids in a padded cell. Not one soul cried the night you died, but mother giggles like a bride. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, there we go. <laughs> yeah, right. Yep. Um, okay, let's see what I can find here that's hilarious. Okay, here's one. It's called A Highly Caloric Lament. And it's a sonnet, but that doesn't matter. A pox upon you, Charlie's Chili Dogs, TGI Fridays, Cold Stone Creamery. You harpies of the dreaded calorie, quit hitting on me till my judgment fogs and every vein and capillary clogs with drippings from your latest recipe. Arugula? Not for the likes of me. And neither are those dreadful diet blogs. Been there, done that, gave all my sweets away, ate naked salad, kept the flab at bay. But nowadays, my magnitude increases. I'm getting tubby, fatter by the day. Just look at me, mine aft has gang aglay. My life's in shreds, my mind's in Reese's pieces. Hmm, mine aft has gang aglay. Yeah, that was a winner. <laughs> I remember being very pleased with myself when I came up with that. <laughs> Is that Welsh? Uh, no, it's Scottish. Scottish, that's, okay. That's Bobby Burns. Ah, uh, okay. Not that I would have noticed. And, and, and not that I'm sure I'm right either, but I think <laughs> and I'm close anyway. I've noticed in the first section, there are two poems facing each other. One is very serious, and the other is very not serious. Uh, the first one is called If in October. And then the one oh. right after it is home again, home again. The two of yeah. them c could not be any more different. Yes, that's right. Do you have the page number there by any chance? Yeah, it's page four and five. Oh. Okay, yeah, they're both about home, though. Yep. Yep. Uh, okay, yeah, that's a good a pair to read one after the other. Um, if in October is a sort of a... Um, memory poem about my being a child uh, and I'll just read it it's it's in free verse by the way if in October I should be driving past a row of brick and shingle bungalows when maple leaves are sticking to the sidewalk and a rain glossed school bus starts to swing its yellow bulk around the corner there you are again framed in a wavy leaded window watering a long-fingered philodendron while the Victrola clatters out Landowska's version of the little preludes through the glass. And I am nine years old. And you, the, co the center of my small universe, are the love of my life to whose powdered presence I come home blissfully day after dangerous day, utterly innocent of a distant time when you will turn from me and withdraw from my archive of losses. Even your quaint name, Alice, melts to nearly nothing on my tongue. Mm -hmm. In honor of my mom. Mm -hmm. And and this second one is called Home Again, Home Again, where I used one of those bouncy um, nursery rhyme meters. And it has to do with uh, something that many adults with grown children, empty nesters, I guess you could call them, face. Uh, their children graduate from school and they're off to work and, and they start a career and too often they come back. <laughs> come back to 
come back to where they were before with mom and dad. And of course, this is a little bit less typical of the 2020s than it was in, say, the 1990s when I think I wrote it. So keep that in mind. But anyway, it's called Home Again, Home Again. The children are back. The children are back. They've come to take refuge, exhale, and unpack. The marriage has faltered. The job has gone bad. Come open the door for them, mother and dad. The city apartment is leaky and cold. The landlord, lascivious, greedy, and old. The mattress is lumpy. The oven's encrusted. The freezer, the fan, and the toilet have rusted. The company caved. The boss went broke. The job and the love affair all up in smoke. The anguish of loneliness comes as a shock. Oh, heart in the doldrums. Oh, heart in hock. And so they return with their piles of possessions their terrified cats and their mournful expressions, reclaiming the bedrooms they had in their teens, clean towels, warm comforter, glass figurines. Downstairs in the kitchen, the father and mother don't say a word, but they look at each other. As down from the hill comes Jill, comes Jack. The children are back. The children are back. Yeah, I think that's still going on from what I've heard. I probably, yeah, I guess that is true. It, it is a little bit different now with kids, uh, you know, not leaving at the same pace or with the same motivation. Well, let's hope so. That they're used to, yeah. <laughs> There's another one, that's speaking of funny, <laughs> mm-hmm. that I'd love to read. It's very short. You'll be happy to hear. Terrific. Is there enough time? Are we doing okay? We are doing fine. Okay. All right, well, this is after a poem by Gwendolyn Brooks, whom everybody knows and loves, specifically for her poem uh, called We Real Cool. Do you know that one? I sure do. Yeah, everybody or almost everybody does. And I'll just read it really quickly, and then I'll read my parody, a polite, warm-hearted parody, (laughs) I assure you, of that poem. And um, it's, okay, it's called We Real Cool, and the subtitle is The Pool Players seven at the golden shovel. We real cool, we left school, we lurk late, we strike straight, we sing sin, we thin gin, we jazz June, we die soon. It's moving, it's it's funny, it's clever, it's marvelous. And uh, I was so taken with that thing that I started thinking maybe I could write something like that. So I wound up writing something almost exactly like that, except with, <laughs> with words replaced, which isn't exactly fair. But I had a great time with it because it is directed to the older generation as opposed to the younger. We Real Old is the name of it. The Breakfast Eaters, Seven at the Golden Waffle. We Real Old, we catch cold, we take pills, we change wills, we can't hear, we crave beer, we eat prune, we die soon. Oh my. (laughs) You can react however you want to that, because I'm really taking uh, unforgivable liberties with with Brooks's wonderful poem, but it was lots of fun (laughs) to do, and I've gotten good reactions from people. I would imagine she would appreciate it. I, I think so. I think so. Yeah. You know, I've been told by some people that some poems only work out loud, but not on the page. Some poems only work on the page, but not out loud. 
Um, however, in looking through this book and other books of yours, I don't see any of them that wouldn't work either out loud or on the page. Um, what do you think about that, that, that dichotomy? Well, for one thing, I, I agree with you totally, and I consider what you just said, if mine don't you know, fail in one of the media or the other, uh, a real compliment. Thank you very, very much. But I, there are poems that, that I like on the page, and I think, oh boy, I get to hear the poet read this out loud, and it, it flops. It just loses what your own brain does to the um, interplay of the words with each other uh, that the poet, the writer, doesn't do, or else maybe the writer has just a very boring way of reading, where there's always a question at the end <laughs> of every line. Um, you pointed out to me, Rusty, um, a poem by Taylor Molly, didn't you? Yep, I Was sure it? did. Yes, right, that had to do with um, having some affectations. The poet, I could be a poet. I could you know, be a poet. If I only did, if I only did you know, these little <laughs> jazzy things. And I, I loved it. It's a very funny poem, and I recommend it to everybody. I don't have it in front of me. But I went online to hear Taylor Molly read it, and I don't think it worked nearly as well as he was. I, it, to me, he was very delighted with himself, <laughs> too much so that he took he took something away from from the meat of the poem. And uh, he was making fun of these affectations, of course, and it worked. But I think I think it could have been done better than even the poet himself. Um, uh, look it up and read it to yourself and then read it out loud and see what you think. Um, I'm probably going to make a lot of people very mad. <laughs> or maybe But that's not. what it's all about. <laughs> yeah, it, it's interesting that uh, I could be a poet. I can make yeah. my voice go up as if yeah. I'm asking a question. Yeah. And you've actually got a poem here that addresses that particular affectation. I think it's called Always a Question. Always something. Questions. Always Do you have questions. the page number on that one? Boy, oh boy. Uh, oh, man, I've got it somewhere. Always Questions. Here it is on page 93. Okay. Okay. This has to do... Uh, with Emily, Dickens, Emily Dickinson's poem um, called, I Started Early, she didn't have titles, I Started Early, Took My Dog and Visited the Sea. And uh, I, I read her poem, which I, I have here somewhere. You're listening to Madison Bookbeat on WORT 89.9 FM, and our guest is Marilyn Taylor. Yes, I found Emily Dickinson's poem, and I think perhaps my poem will come across better if you've heard uh, Emily's first. It's not one of her, fa her uh, most famous poems, but it's a wonderful one, and it's called, I started early, took my dog, and visited the sea. The mermaids in the basement came out to look at me, and frigates in the upper floor extended hempen hands, presuming me to be a mouse aground upon the sands. But no man moved me till the tide went past my simple shoe and past my apron and my belt and past my bodice too and made as he would eat me up as holy as the dew upon a dandelion sleeve. And then I started too. And he, he followed close behind. I felt his silver heel upon my ankle 
then my shoes would overflow with pearl. Until we met the solid town, no man he seemed to know, and bowing with a mighty look at me, the sea withdrew. Wonderful, wonderful poem. Mm-hmm. And I use it as just the introduction to the poem that I wrote, which is called, as you were saying, Always Questions. And I have a little epigraph here, which a poet friend of mine refers to as an epithingy, because (laughs) you can't can't remember if it's an epigram or an epigraph or or, or epigraph or what, but it's an epigraph. And it goes like this. Yesterday at the mall, I bought a book of Emily Dickinson for my mom. And you hear that a lot sort of thing, a lot at the mall. Okay. There is a moment in the middle teens when virtually every sentence ends on an upward curl as if it really means to be a question or at least pretends to entertain an element of doubt like this. I started early, took my dog, implying that I may have ventured out exceptionally late to take a jog without the dog or anyone else along. And if I add, and visited the sea, I'm hinting that of course I could be wrong about this sea thing, (laughs) ha ha, you know me. It's evidently hard for them to say the thing they mean without a little cue for feedback, for the understood, okay, or possibly they talk the way they do because they are the representatives of a long out of date civility. These gentle souls who speak in tentatives and always dwell in possibility. Yes, you do hear that a lot in public, generally from younger people, I believe. Yes, and most often, I think, from female younger people. I I don't know whether it's because they're still gaining the confidence they need to end sentences on the down tone. Um, I I think a lot of them are getting over it as as time and and feminism increases and Hmm. gains some steam. Yeah, I think you're right. It, it, they, they seem to need uh, some sort of, um, okay, yeah, and then what? You know, that a man at a meeting, you know, doesn't need. He just says, this is, I'm generalizing. Oh, I'm generalizing so much, and I don't mean to. It's just, for example, here. Uh, but, yeah, I think that um, there is, it's called upspeak, and I've heard linguists mm. talk about it. Interesting. Uh, where... Yeah, where even even if it's not a poem, but even if it's something that's being announced by somebody on a microphone, they'll, uh, a woman, a young woman, will often, if, if she's being interviewed, will often say, well, they almost hit my car, but then they, the police came and they hadn't hit my car, so I um, drove away. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> what, what? <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, you're right. I think men are socialized to be more assertive, mm-hmm. uh, even in speech. Yes, I agree. Uh, but it's, it's, it's changing for the better. It certainly is changing from all the women I know, at least. Yeah, well, we run in a certain crowd. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, you've done a lot of teaching of poetry in all sorts yeah. of places. And I was wondering... Do you have a particular approach as contrasted with the horrible cliche that I've heard millions of times from really bad teachers? So what is the poet trying to say? And oh, I always, boy. And I always think, well, the poet just said it. 
Yeah, exactly. The poet just said it. And there's, I won't, I don't have it on me, but that poem by Billy Collins, um, I think it's called Teaching Poetry. And he goes on for several stanzas about how um, the teachers attempt to tear the poem to shreds, thereby ruining the poem. Mm-hmm. And it, it's, um, he phrases it far more gracefully than that. But I think that that is absolutely not the thing to do. I think that I, uh, to, to teach a poem for the first time isn't as hard as it sounds. Um, because I think that everybody who signs up for a poetry class has something to say. And I suggest that they, that they write it down and then they go back to it in a day or two and then go back to it in a day or two and try to compress and try not to digress and try to make it a sort of a nugget of the speaker's true, you know, interest and commitment to what he or she is trying to say. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it varies. And the feedback I get uh, is different with undergrads than from, you know, mature people who um, they know this already because often they have done more po- reading of poetry than the usual undergrad. And uh, it just seems to develop when they read a lot more poetry and they don't read irrelevant poetry like old Ironsides or something. But they first they start with Ginsburg and then they can move up to the other poets that um, that talk about things that are relevant to the day and age they're living in. And of course, now there's performance poetry. There's there's um, hip hop and rap and all that. Uh, uh, brand new genres or subgenres that I don't know the first thing about. I could not teach them if I flew to the moon, but I think that that has done wonders for um, stoking an interest in poems, yeah. performance poems. Often those are ones, Rusty, that fall flat on the page and they just come to life spoken out loud. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and poetry slams seem to have yeah. opened things up to yeah. people that, who would not normally be drawn to poetry. Yes, exactly. There's the competitive element, of course. Yeah, which is unfortunate, but that's yeah, my own but opinion. It's there. Yeah. yeah. But, Haven't you run some poetry slams? Yes, I admit. I will admit to that. I've not been sent to jail, but that <laughs> that could happen at any time. Well, if I showed up at any of them, they'd send me to jail and tell me to get out of there. Well, yeah, I ran Poetry Slams for, for several years, and, mm-hmm. and I've entered Poetry Slams, and I've never once won a Poetry Slam, ever. Really? <laughs> yes. I'm sad. <laughs> I'm, I, I, I don't know what to say, because you are such a wonderful speaker and so articulate, and I also have read your poems, many of them. And I really admire them. Well, maybe the people weren't drinking enough. <laughs> it's a possibility. You know, we always say, uh, yeah. the more you drink, the better we sound. <laughs> yes, right. Beautifully, beautifully phrased. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, where are you going to be teaching next? Well, I'm going to be on, on the Zoom thing um, in June, uh, one the, on the Villanelle. Uh, I'm teaching a class in the Villanelle uh, on June 16th on Zoom, which you can sign up through uh, for through the Wisconsin Fellowship of Poets. Mm-hmm. I understand that you can also join the Wisconsin Fellowship of Poets at the same time, but I don't think you have to necessarily, but do, because it's wonderful. If you're listening you know, to a show like this, you should be a member of the Wisconsin Fellowship of Poets if you're not already. It would seem um, so. 
Yeah, it certainly would. And so I'll be teaching a course in the Villanelle on June 16th as a two-part course. The second part will be July um, 16th, I think. But anyway, it's on, it's on the WFOP website, the details are. And uh, I um, have a whole bunch of examples of Villanelles and um, ways to, to approach them. And there's, there's a secret, you know, to approaching them, to approaching villanelles, and that is that you write the repeated lines first as a little rhymed couplet, and then, and then your, errand, your, your ending is guaranteed <laughs> because uh, it'll be that wonderful little rhymed couplet that you wrote before you even started, and it'll come to an end with a nice click. Oh, that's terrific. It's another one yeah. of those tricks like you told uh in writing Sestinas. Yeah, you write them all, write all the end words down the right-hand side of the page. Um, I'm surprised there are no poems in here uh, from the Ladies' Undies section of the Sears catalog. <laughs> Somehow I wasn't inspired to write a poem about by, from an irate, about a, a letter from an irate customer that didn't like the fact that his red long underwear that he bought ran. <laughs> <laughs> on his, uh, never mind. <laughs> but uh, there, there was it wasn't it wasn't poem worthy. Let me put it that way. <laughs> um, I got out of there as fast as I could. Uh, let me see. I'm just I just want to read a good villanelle that has a good. Okay, here's one. This is written by a man named um, A. M. Juster, who goes informally as Mike. And the. the um, couplet that he started out with was, if, if I were single once again, I would indulge like other men, which is a wonderful little rhyme couplet. And he expanded it into a villanelle. And it goes like this. If, if I were single once again, not that I'm really planning, dear, I would be indulged like other men. I'd bag the low fat regimen and live on burgers, ribs, and beer. If I were single once again, there would be Fritos in the den, and napkin rings would disappear. I would indulge like other men, not shave or floss, and sleep past 10. My feelings would, could be insincere if I were single once again, and free to leave the seat up when my heart desired. It is clear I would indulge like other men. Although I would be helpless then and yearn for your return, I fear if I were single once again, I would indulge like other men. Ah, uh, very nice. Isn't that great? Yeah, it is. That is terrific, yeah. Villanelle. Yeah. I'm afraid we have to uh, draw this to an end. Thank you very much, Marilyn Taylor, for joining us. Thank you, Rusty. This was a pleasure. So, folks, you've been listening to Madison Bookbeat with guest Marilyn Taylor, a local poet and educator. I'm your host, Rusty Russell. Join us next week, same time, same place. Now, stay tuned for All Around Jazz with Alex Wilding White. This is WORT 89.9 FM in Madison, Wisconsin.